0: You may, not, um, you may not think of the 1970s as being 50 years ago. That sounds strange to anyone? No, not if you're, not if you're a young person. I mean, the, the 1970s were 50 years ago. I'm reminded of this because um, my sweet 10-year-old son looked at me one day when he kind of realized something and said, oh my goodness, Dad, you were born in the 1900s? like... Is there a worse possible way to say that? Uh, yes, I know, I'm old. Not like that. Here's the point, 1972, uh, before a lot of you were even born, there was a warning sounded about worship in the United States. A man by the name of Gordon Dahl, D-A-H-L, wrote a book called Work, Play, and Worship in a Leisure-Oriented Society. Fascinating title. Work, Play, and worship in a leisure-oriented society. And here's what he said, okay? Get this, because it's, it's an important quote. 1972, he said, Most Americans tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. As a result, their meanings and values are completely distorted. Their relationships disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair and their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot did you hear what he said we worship not god we worship our work we work hard at our recreation and we play we dilly-dally with our worship now we're not 50 years of warning we're not that confused about worship are we Confusion about worship has always been an age-old issue. As a matter of fact, Jesus, in one of his evangelistic encounters, tells a story about a woman that he met at a well in Samaria. And as he is engaging this woman, this woman wants to ask all kinds of religious questions. And Jesus says, woman, listen, there is an hour coming when we're not going to worship your way, we're not going to worship this way. We're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. Those are words from Jesus' own lips. So if that's the standard, we don't want to certainly play at our worship, We want to worship God in spirit and in truth. Who's got the answer? You know how we do that? Today, I hope, as we talk about this um, uh, second sermon in our series, First Things First, to propose for you some resolutions to consider as we go into uh, 2020. As strange as that still sounds to say, 2020. uh, We're there. And how is your discipleship, your followership of God, going to look different? Well, it's not if you don't follow focus on your worship you see here's the problem we are confused about worship because we tend to think of worship as something that we do we think that the church is a building and we think that worship is something that happens exclusively on sunday morning it is a one and done so if someone says hey what did you do today well i went to worship check the box one and done i attended it's done with i have been there done that Paid my obligation, it's over. You're not going to like this illustration, but the way that most of us approach worship is the way most men approach a diet. At least this man. If I go out for dinner, and you know this is a fantasy world because this would never happen, and for my entree, I choose a salad, not going to happen. I am so proud of myself for eating a salad as a meal that I'm like, the diet has been accomplished. I am done. I have eaten the salad. I have, I have eaten food that my food eats, you know, and I need a choir to sing and I want, I want the cook and all the servers. Uh, it's not my birthday, but come sing songs to me praising how good and how disciplined I am with my diet because boom, one and done, diet over, mission accomplished. That's the way most people approach worship. It doesn't work for your diet. And it doesn't work for worship either. Worship is far more complex than that. Last week, we tried to change the the narrative that we most hear about prayer from being very selfish and kind of giving a wish list to the big guy in the sky, you know, the Santa Claus, the, 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 the Santa Claus in the sky to say, Prayer is a way that we actually express dependence on God. We depend on Him for everything. In the same way, I hope this morning to to rattle our cage a little bit about worship. Because I'll I'll be honest, myself included, I think as Americans, we get a failing grade when it comes to worship. So I want us to reframe a little bit how we think of worship this morning. And so uh, to accomplish that, three things we're going to do today. Number one, we're going to look at kind of where we are now. What's the state of worship today? We're going to talk about what worship is. I'm going to propose a definition for worship that I think works. And then number three, finally, I want us to consider together how we can have a more robust and biblical definition of worship. So we start by talking about where we are today. What is the state of worship today? And to talk about today, I have to go back 15 years to 2005. In 2005, researchers from Duke University conducted a major research uh, program of uh, church-attending teenagers, uh, published in a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teens. And uh, these were teens that are church-going teens, and here's what the study concluded, that most Christian teenagers actually follow a civil religion that uses Christian terms but is not biblical Christianity. Mom, dad, how that make you feel? All the money that we spend on children's ministry and youth ministry, what they're getting is something less than biblical Christianity. There's a cartoon out there, and I am so grateful that we don't have a student ministry that is focusing on entertaining kids on the way to hell. But there's a, there's a, there's a cartoon where a, a dad, a, a kid comes to a dad and says, hey, dad, is, um, is hell a real place? To which dad goes, er, uh, y- uh, whatever your youth pastor says. Next slide, the youth pastor is standing up in front of the youth group and says, guys, kids, tonight we're going to explore one of the most important questions in life. How many marshmallows can you fit in your mouth? That's where we're at. We would rather be entertained than wrestle with the, the big questions of life. And so when he talks about this civil religion, it is a watered-down but Christian-sounding religion. Uh, they came up with the term for it. Three letters, MTD, that stands for moralistic therapeutic deism. They said, if we were going to examine the religiosity of teenagers today, it would be this. It would not be Christianity. It would be moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, uh, MTD has five major tenets. And I want you to listen to this carefully because the tenets sound good, but when you compare it against the Bible, it falls woefully short of what the Bible teaches the Christian faith is about. Number one, the first tenet. God exists... And he created and ordered the world and watches over it. So they believe in, uh, maybe not the God of the Bible, but they believe in some kind of creation. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice as affirmed by most of the world's religions. So nothing distinctly Christian about this. Whatever the world's religions agree on is nice, regardless of what is true, you just need to be nice. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. That's the goal. That is the the end goal, the the, the most essential thing is that you are happy and you feel good about yourself. Number four, God is not particularly involved except when absolutely necessary. He shows up to do things, but um, pretty much don't don't expect Him to show up in any other time. Fifth and finally, all good people go to heaven when they die. Sounds kind of sort of Christian, and some of you go, hey man, this sounds great, this is exactly what I believe. But here's the problem, it is... Moralistic. Their goal is to be good, not to be godly. And listen, if you are under the delusion that like, and I hate to say this this way, um, that coming to worship earns you brownie points with God, I want you to stop for a second, because like if you can do anything to win favor with God, you unintentionally mock the sacrifice of Christ. Like worship is impossible from believing in God, believing in Christ and what he has done. You might be religious, you might be a seeker, but you are less than worshiping God if you are not a follower of Christ. That's why that is the baseline for us. You have, got to, you, you have got to wrestle with Jesus. You can't just like church and be a part of Northside. You have to like Jesus. That's essential. And so their goal is to be good. It's moralistic. If you are a good boy or a good girl, you go to heaven. Regardless of what you believe about Jesus, MTD teaches, just be, just be good, don't be godly. Don't be born again followers of Christ. Just be good. Guys, listen, if we could be good, why did Jesus come? Man, the biggest issue is I am not good. And apart from the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, I would be a lot worse than I am. And the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you might have spurts of goodness, but they still don't measure up to the glory of God. It is therapeutic. The goal is for the adherents to have therapeutic benefits. God has organized everything to be about me. For me to feel good, for me to have high self-esteem, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the Bible says that the goal is to adore worship and obey God. Not to adore worship and obey me. It is deistic. God created the world, but He leaves it alone until we need Him to fix something. So the end result is moralistic therapeutic deism, rather than transformation from God, reduces Christianity to a spiritual utility for self-enhancement. It's like plastic surgery for your soul. You want to get those lips plucked up? Yeah, I'm going to do that. And then 20 years from now, you're like, oh man, that wasn't such a good idea. It's like tattoos. They're fun when you're 20, and you wonder, what is that shape when you turn 50? You know, is that a, is that a, A butterfly or an elephant? I can't quite tell. (laughs) Seemed like a good idea. And so people are doing plastic surgery for their soul. A quick fix that sounds like Christianity, but it's not. So here's their conclusion. This is not just a teenage problem. Long extended quote. All of this means that teenagers have been listening very carefully. They've been observing their parents and their grandparents in the larger culture with diligence and insight. They understand, listen to this, just how little their elders really believe, and just how much, of, how, how much many of their churches have accommodated themselves to the dominant culture. They have come to understand that Christianity is not a big deal, that God has very little expectations of them, and the church is reduced to a helpful social institution filled with nice people. They sense the degree to which theological conviction has been sacrificed on the altar of individualism, pragmatism, and a relativistic understanding of truth. They have learned from their elders, elders that self-improvement is the one great moral imperative to which we are all accountable. And they have observed the fact that the highest aspiration of those who shape this culture is to find happiness, security, and meaning in life. Guys, listen. Moral, well, moralistic, therapeutic, deism, falls woefully short of the glory of God, and yet that's where we're at. It is easy to see the fruit of that in our kids' lives, but when we ask where the root is that that came from, it's from our own unbelieving lives, where we sprinkle just the the, the most um, tenuous veneer of Bible on top of it and promote the way that we live is the way that God wants us to live. Instead of really worshiping God, in sticking to his word so this is the state of worship today we worship ourselves we sprinkle a little christianity on it and we say it's all good we we, we warm up our parents and our grandparents leftovers that is generation after generation after generation removed from biblical christianity and yet it's like we we're, we're so trying to convince ourselves that we, we do things better than g- generations previously when all we've done is getting far, g- gotten farther and farther away from the source. That's the state of worship today. Not biblical Christianity, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, if that's the problem, what, how do we define worship today? Uh, <clears throat> now, there's a lot of ways to make worship, which is very complex, a very convoluted, uh, to come up with a very convoluted uh, definition. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to do something that I can explain to my kids and they can repeat back to me. So if you don't like my definition of worship, you don't have to. Just come up with a better one, okay? So think through this and say, all right, what is worship? And the challenge is we tend to think of worship as a variety of different things except for what it really is. We tend to think of church as a building. We tend to think of worship as music. Both of those are vital and important. But they're not a robust in biblical definition of worship. So here's, here's my definition. Take it or leave it. Worship is a journey. That's important because it's not an event. It's not a thing you check off your to-do list. Worship is a journey that goes deeper into all of who God is that affects all of who I am. So worship is not just something you show up and do. Worship is something that should transform you. And the way that it transforms you is through your your head, your heart, and your hands. You are learning things about God. You You are digging deeper into all of who God is, and that has an impact because it affects every part of who you are. There's a mind component. When we talk about going deeper, learning more about who God is, we are actively learning more about God. Now, I know anytime we get people together, there is going to be this guy or this girl in the room. And I don't know who it is. Is so one of you guys in the front row? Maybe. I don't know. I'm watching you. And one of these guys back here, I don't know. But there's that guy who's got God figured out, who's got all the answers. Anybody that you? Got it all figured out? Anybody want to nominate the person sitting next to them? They got it all figured out? And there's somebody, you know, you meet these people that they've got it all figured out. Here's the thing that's incredible about worship. Is people go, man, I don't know heaven being one big worship service. I don't think that's what the afterlife will be like. I think it'll be a lot more diverse than that. But I, I think heaven could be um, an opportunity where every moment of our existence, we find out something new about God. Because contrary to popular opinion, you don't become omniscient when you die. God is still God. You are still a creation, <laughs> Like, you do not become omniscient. God and God alone is omniscient. People think, like, we die and, like, we know everything. No, I, I, I think our, our minds are fully redeemed and we understand more about God and His ways. But I think God is so deep and so inexhaustible that we could study Him for all eternity and still not plumb the depths of the glory of who God is. If that's what our occupation is for eternity, that should be what our occupation is in our worship. We should want to know more about God because there is a mind component. It is a constant journey to learn everything that we can about God, knowing we'll never know everything about the glory of who God is. There's a heart component. Orthodoxy, believing the right things, should never be dry, dusty, and dull, but rather it should transform our loves and our desires. In the model prayer that we looked at last week, Jesus says that we are to pray for His kingdom and His will. And yet so often when we pray, how much do you pray about your kingdom and your will? You pretty much take what you want to do, you offer it up to God and ask Him to bless it. God, here's what I want to do. Just, you know, confirm it. Open the door, close the window, whatever it is. You know, we've become real interested in architecture in egress and uh, escape routes and all this kind of stuff. No, no, no there's a heart component. Our heart must be, must be involved in this and we must love what God loves more than what we want. Some of the biblical words that are used for worship talk about this heart attitude of submission. Uh, the words for worship talk about bowing down or uh, prostrating oneself. Uh, one word for worship actually talks about what you might see in a medieval movie where, you know, the king has the big signet ring and you kiss the ring to show honor to the king. That's one of the Biblical words for worship is that you submit yourself. You have a heart attitude of uh, submission to an authority over you. And listen, you can show up for worship and you can mouth the words. You can even close your eyes and raise your hands. If your heart is not truly in it, you're not worshiping. You need to be aimed in your mind towards God and His glory. And in your heart, you need to have the right attitude or you are simply going through the motions. There's a hands component because what we do with what we know and what we love, finally uh, ushers out in how we live differently. We have new knowledge, we have renewed desires, we love the right thing, and now we do different things. Biblical words that are used for worship mean service done for others or a deity, an authority. So service, uh, worship is not just music, it is uh, doing things uh, because of your heart, what you know and how your heart is oriented, doing things for others or for a superior. That's so what I think about where we are and where we need to be. Today, I want us to look at Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. And I want us to do something. Uh, I want us to examine ourselves on the four poles of worship. Um, if you think about a compass, a compass has four poles. has north, south, east, and west. What we've done is we've kind of turned this on its side and made it an X. And I'm going to suggest that each of these are an axis that some of us do better at one of these poles than the other. Some of us are probably pretty well-rounded, have a good foundation, we're good in all of these. But there are four components to a biblical definition of worship. And we're going to find these in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19-25. through 25. Here's what God's Word says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence in, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I love that it makes it clear. There is no worship of God apart from Christ. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Four components, four poles of worship. Number one, worship is public. Worship is public. Another word we might use for that, worship is congregational. We are drawing together. All throughout this passage, there are these let us admissions: Let us, let us, let us, let us draw together. Let us not forsake. And so it begins corporately. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, sisters, family of God. Verse 25 is really clear that togetherness is important. Worship God on your own. But verse 25, don't neglect to meet together because some do. Don't be like them. Despite your good personal or private time with God throughout the week, the Bible's saying don't neglect coming together. What I love here too is it says that all of these things uh, in verse uh, 25 encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day that he's talking about is the return of Christ. And here's one thing that we all know. The return of Christ is nearer to us than it was when Hebrews 10 was written. And it means that public worship should be more of a priority. The closer we get to Christ coming back, the more we should dedicate ourselves to public worship. So there's there's something I want you to do. This is not a sign-up on your, your bulletin tear-off, but I have a ministry that whether you are visiting or whether you are a member, whether you have been here for a long time or whether you are brand new, there is a ministry I want every single one of you to sign up for. Is that clear? Like, this is for everybody. Man, woman, boy, girl, if you're in your teens, your 20s, all the way to you're ready to meet Jesus. It's everybody. Here's a ministry. The most basic ministry that every Christian should have is the ministry of attendance. Showing up. That's the most basic thing. Everybody can do it. And the Bible says that meeting together becomes more important. We should realize how much we need it, not just because we need it, but because God is glorified by us getting together. Here's, here's what's crazy. It's just crazy to me. People, people are so fickle, and I'm one of them. You know, like, we make judgments all the time. So, you're standing in the supermarket. Number one, you don't want to stand in a line, right? So, like, what do you do? You look for, you will race someone to the open register, and you will cut an old lady off, be, even if she's got, like, one thing, so that you can be be first. Like, we just don't interact with people. And if you do get in line, there is something subconscious that makes you decide whether you're going to engage or not engage in conversation with the person in front of you behind. Like, you are so judgmental that you don't even know how you make judgments to even just, like, greet people casually. Right? You tracking with me? You understand what I'm saying? Maybe you've had a good day. Maybe you're feeling good, and you're a little more friendly, and you're a little more outgoing. But then there are some times you're in line in the supermarket, you ain't talking to nobody. I mean, even when the cashier says, hey, how are you? You're like, uh. you know, you stick your card in, you know, don't talk to anybody. And so here's, here's what's crazy. When it comes to people's religious life, okay, people want to make a connection with somebody at church. So let's just say, and if you're visiting today, I'm not picking on anybody. I pick on everybody, so like, you, you'll get used to it. But let's just say somebody is visiting today, and they have, you know, everybody's uh, got their own eccentricities, right? That's what makes us individuals. Somebody has just some kind of specific eccentricity. And Wayne, you're standing in the back, so I'm going to pick on you. So let's say Wayne has the same eccentricities that the guy that's visiting. And if Wayne's here and they meet, guess what happens? Sparks fly. Like, man, I feel like I've known this guy all my life. Man, that Wayne is a good guy. What happens if Wayne isn't here? That dude who may for the first time in 10 years have come to church may walk out the door not having made a connection with anybody. And guess where he goes to church next week? Probably nowhere. You have a ministry. We may not talk about it like that. You have a ministry of attendance. And the the church will most unmistakably suffer if you're not here. You are indispensable to the life of the body because the Bible says the body needs every part. If I asked you today, hey, before you leave, I need you to give up a body part. Wow. <laughs> My little toe, <laughs> Like, what, what am I going to do? Appendix, I don't really need that, but it's kind of hard to get to, you know. The little toe would be relatively easy. Um, good golly. And yet every day, every, every week when churches meet, they're missing massive parts of their body. There are black holes that exist in congregations because people just don't show up. So show up. Be a part of the ministry of attendance. Number two, worship is personal. Worship is personal. All of these admonitions, let us, let us, let us, uh, they are, they are um, uh, third person, they are plural, it's talking about everybody, hey, let's, let's do this, let's do this, let's, let's be corporate, let's get together, but they are also Individual. What, what, uh, what the author to the book of Hebrews is saying is, hey, let us each one together do these things. Let us each one together do these things. So think about this. When it comes to your personal worship, that doesn't mean like you take up an offering for yourself. Um, no, no, no. What I'm talking about is like, you can, you can sing whatever you like six days a week. I, I get tired of hearing churches that fight about worship and what that tells me, and I'm grateful that we don't have that here, but what that tells me is when I hear of churches fighting about worship is that obviously the people aren't worshiping at all on their own throughout the week. Because if they worship six, listen, you, I, I think it's even possible that you could probably worship God to like Christian country music. I mean, I don't know how that happens. Um, I really don't, you know. Um, but you might be able to even worship God for country. Do that, but don't force your preferences on everybody else that doesn't worship the same way you do. If you worship privately and you are encouraged and fulfilled by that, it doesn't do anything but exacerbate and symbiotically increase what we do when we get together. Your bucket's full because you've been worshiping all week on your own and you have something to bring to the table. Listen, if we all spent time in the Word like we know we should, like we we don't spend time in the Word like we know we should, Dan's going to talk about that next week. It's got to be a priority spending time in the Word. And, And out of the overflow of our time in the Word, we came to worship what do you think our corporate worship would be like if everybody did what they were supposed to do, do this week? It would be better. It would be magnified. And so he's saying this, guys, listen, when we draw together together, you have to draw near to God on your own before it does anything for us. You cannot ride the coattails of your mama's worship like your mom might really get something out of worship. Your dad might really get something out of worship. We play a vital role in encouraging each other. Like if I'm digging, if I, I if my heart's in the right place and I am digging worship, you know it, and so does everybody else. So like don't don't sing like the Grinch. Look like you enjoy it because you are your face is telegraphing a testimony to everyone else that's in the room, and some of you just might look like you either ate lemons for breakfast or you just really don't like God. Um, Or, you know, redemption is not a big deal. And so, like, look like you enjoy it. And so, if I look like I enjoy it, I am sending a testimony to you that God is worthy of worship. Uh, That's a personal issue for me, but it also magnifies itself into public worship. There's just amazing um, magnifiers, force multipliers, that happen when we worship. You cannot ride the coattails of worship. You must be a worshiper yourself. Your worship can encourage other people's worships, but it cannot substitute. He says this when he says that we must have clean hearts and clean consciences. We must be sprinkled. That's everybody individually. And when everyone individually has clean hearts and clean consciences, and we come together for the focus of worshiping God, it, it, we, we are exacerbating. We are multiplying our worship. Number three, worship is holiness worship is holiness in verse 22 this idea of cleansing our hearts and our consciences and our body this idea of cleansing is talking about holiness and so you know, the um the challenge is when we talk about cleansing i'm not aware of anyone here who has a personal hygiene problem if the person sitting next to you has a personal hygiene problem would you please raise your hand no don't do that <laughs> you would know it and so like Everybody knows, um, I mean, uh, we don't have any adults sitting with our, our, our young guys over here, so, um, you know, aftershave, deodorant's a good thing. Um, we think it's important to take, to bathe in some way every day. Take notes, okay? Every day we think that that's important. So why would we think it's not important for us to worship or spend time with God in prayer and the Word every day? My heart needs washed with the Word. And that's what this is talking about, is holiness. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, says it as clearly as possible. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So the way that we present our bodies is by living holy lives. And then he says this, this is your spiritual worship. Jesus says, worship me in spirit and truth. Paul says, you want to know the way you worship God spiritually? You live a holy life. Not because you're trying to earn something, but because the gospel has transformed you. You are living a holy life, and this is your spiritual form of worship. Fourth and finally, worship is service. Worship is service. Verse 24 talks about our obligations to others. It says we are to stir one another up. We are to consider. We are to be creative. We are to break out our imagining caps to think how can we stir one another up to love and good deeds. We have obligations to serve one another, to stir them up, to love and to good deeds, to encourage them. Galatians 6.10 says this well. It says as you have the opportunity, not, not every opportunity is your opportunity, but as you have the opportunity, do good to everyone but especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's kind of like with your family. You love your family and you love your friends, but you don't love your friends the same way you love your family. That's creepy. It's weird. I mean, it's okay for you to love your family differently than you love your friends. Your friends are not going to accuse you of not loving them. There is a distinction between your family and people who are not your family. And the Bible just says, "Man, just do it. Do good." Especially do good to those who belong to your faith family. Now, here's the point, and I'm going to go back to worship is public. You cannot stir up if you do not show up. You can't. You cannot stir up. Okay, so think about every fantasy movie with a witch in it, in her cauldron, in her big old wood spoon. You do not have a spoon that is long enough to come from your bedroom or your living room or your kitchen to our church. If you are going to encourage and stir one another up, you have to be here. Now, you can think about helping someone out or encouraging someone or stirring someone up, but if you don't show up, you have missed the opportunity. You have neglected to do good if you're not present. You cannot give yourself to the church if you're not Present with the church and yet most people when we talk about giving in the church and i'm not talking about finances but it applies to that when you talk about giving yourself your time uh, your talent your resources most people think of giving to the church at the same level of esteem that they think of giving to the irs paid my god tax now i'm free to do whatever i want oh that is the wrong motive for worship so here's what i've done talking about these four things worship is public Worship is private, worship is holiness, and worship is service. I've created a graphic here, and I don't know that this is going to work. It didn't in the first service. Um, you've got kind of a scatter plot here. In the top corner up here is talking about public worship, and you've got a scale. Do you do really bad, kind of better, a little bit better, doing great? Here's personal worship, you know, uh, one, two, three, four on a scale. Holiness, one, two, three, four on a scale. Service, one, two, three, four on a scale. And someone who is maxing out, getting everything they can, dedicating all of their discipleship, their energies, their passions to public worship is maxed out here, maxed out here, maxed out here, maxed out here. What shape does it make? It makes a square. It is somebody who has a firm foundation. They are, even though it's a square, they are a well-rounded worshiper. They're not putting all their eggs in the um, Sunday morning basket, but they are worshiping personally, privately, publicly, congregationally, and they're giving themselves to service and to holiness. What we got over here is, this over here is the kind of ideal worshiper. Over here is probably a little bit more like real life. Here's the guy that thinks that worship is just about what happens on Sunday morning. How do we know? Because he... Kind of gives himself pretty decently to service, you know. He'll hold an old door for a lady or something like that or help take up the offering. You know, it's got to be convenient. You know, and if I can kill two birds with one stone on Sunday morning, serve and worship, man, that's even great. Um, Doesn't really give himself a whole lot to holiness. Uh, Doesn't really give himself a whole lot to personal worship. What do you think this guy's worship life looks like compared to this guy's? It's a little different. It's a little different. And if we reduce worship to what we do for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning, you're going to look like the second guy and not the first. If, if our congregational worship, our public worship, is supposed to drive you to worship throughout the week, and to worship throughout the week not just by singing, uh, and not just by spending time in the Word or by praying, but by actually encouraging you to be holy and to serve others. You know what happens when we come to worship? It is like, It is like a pep rally. Because instead of everybody coming with depleted tanks, hoping to come to the gas station to get filled up, you're coming with something to give. Because worship isn't all about you. It's about God. And you're living for Him throughout the week, not just on Sunday, hoping that you can get enough Thanksgiving dinner to last you to next Thanksgiving. Worship is active. And I love this because we do tend to think of worship almost exclusively as what we do corporate. And that's good. But I want you to understand something. If, if you are like this guy, basically the report card that you're bringing home for worship is 25%. And if your kid brought home a report card and he got 25% on every subject, he got an F. Oh, you'd be agitated. You'd be like, what in the world is going on? And yet, if we put all our eggs in one basket and we only stand worship as being congregational, congratulations, you failed worship. You have failed to understand it. You're not allowing what happens on Sunday morning to transform and impact the way that you live throughout the rest of the week. But there's something that's really good here because there's a relationship between all these forms of worship. They are symbiotic. They are catalytic. In the military, we would say they are force multipliers. It's not just the army. It's the Air Force on top of them. And it's the Navy out in the ocean. It's everybody together working for the same goal. Public worship is improved not by focusing on public worship. Public worship is improved by maybe focusing in these other areas. Maybe your worship is a 25% because you're not serving anybody. Maybe your worship is, is tepid because you don't worship throughout the rest of the week. And something that's only important for you for 20 minutes on Sunday, I can't say is a priority for you if it's not something that occupies real estate in the rest of your week. I love the way Hebrews chapter 13, if you flip over a page. Hebrews 13 Verses 15 and 16 says these same things. It uses these same four categories. Public, private, holiness, and service. It says it in a very succinct way. Hebrews 13, uh, verses 15 and 16. Through him, meaning through Jesus, then let us continually, meaning all the time. We talked last week about praying without ceasing. Now he's saying we are to offer up a sacrifice of praise continually. So we're supposed to pray without ceasing. We are supposed to worship without ceasing. Um, let, us, l- let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge Him. So our lips sing God's praise. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to, and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Lips that acknowledge God lead to Lives, in verse 16, that do not neglect to do good and share what they have. Worship is corporate. Let us, individually, it's private. It is uh, holiness, lips that acknowledge His name, and it is service. Not neglecting to do good and to share and realizing that such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You want to please God? Let your lips and your lives reflect Him. We, we know very clearly, um, Jesus says this, that it is easy to honor him with our lips and for our hearts to be far removed. Jesus rejects that worship and so should we. I conclude with this passage, First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter says this, he says, you yourselves are like living stones and you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer... Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, this passage tells us very clearly that we are being built up. This is something that is happening to us. God is building us up. But as individuals, we also have a responsibility, as we've seen in service to others, to be building too. God is building something through us, but we are building our lives upon something. So I conclude with two questions. How are you growing up personally in worship? Are you just hitting on one of four cylinders? Is worship for you simply what we do together? Maybe there's some opportunity for you to grow in 2020. When it comes to understanding worship in some of these other ways, that worship is private. You need, there is nobody preventing you from worshiping God uh, Monday through Saturday. Do it. Again, maybe your worship is inadequate because you're not serving or you're not taking holiness seriously. How are you growing up personally in worship? That's a discipleship question every single one of us need to ask. Number two, how are you building up the household of God? And that's my responsibility and it's your responsibility. This is our house. What are you doing to build it up? You're building something with your life. Are you building something that's beautiful and brings praise to God? Are you one of those guys that suffers from MTD? You're incapable of building anything without it being self-referential. Guys, listen, we're not here to worship ourselves. That's a really short worship service. We're here to worship God. And I pray that in 2020, uh, we will seek to make our worship uh, what is pleasing to God, not what's pleasing to ourselves. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we ask that you forgive us for what we have turned worship into. We have made it about our preferences. and uh, Listen, I, I've even heard people say, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you know, I want more convenient times to come to worship. We make it about our schedule. We make it about our preferences. We make it about you know, our, um, our eccentricities, our peccadillos, you know, the things that we want. And yet, God, we, we have got to understand that worship is not about us. It must be about you. So, Father, please forgive us for where we have failed you in worship. We pray that you help us, that you add the convicting work and power of your Spirit to help us to understand that we can worship seven days a week, not just one out of seven, that you have redeemed us uh, not to try to earn our salvation by being good, but by being good because your gospel message is transforming us. We have something greater to live for than simply our own glory, and that's your glory, Father. Help us to understand how important it is for us to serve one another. Some of that service will be unseen and hidden. Uh, Some of it may be more public. But Father, we don't do it for the praise of men. We do it to honor our Father in heaven. Uh, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.